Several references have been made to a resurrection at the last trump, and that the day of the Feast of Trumpets represents that. Now, is that the case? Is that symbolism correct? There is an organization that broke off from Worldwide Church of God sometime before the big breakup that has been teaching that Pentecost is the day of the first resurrection, that since it represents the first fruits, that's the day of the resurrection of the first fruits. And considerable logic or reasoning has been given to show that that is the truth using scriptures. Is it so? Is what we have been doing all these years correct? Or is it wrong? Are we looking at today for the wrong reasons? Does what I'm about to say change what we've been hearing all day long? I know we need to be open to change, to possibilities. Now, this group or this minister who's teaching that the first resurrection comes on Pentecost wrote a very thick book showing the Passover as we understood it and worldwide to be correct. I think we have since dispelled that and shown that that is totally incorrect and unscriptural and that it is truly a feast of seven days, inclusive, not eight. In this case, this author stayed with the traditional teaching and on Pentecost he did make a change. Now, was it the correct change? I looked into this, I read some sermons about it to understand the reasoning behind why that was made. I did not want to try to answer this without hearing the question or examining the evidence. I think I have turned up some information which may help us better understand both Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets. And I'm not going to tell you which way this will go yet. I have to have some way to keep you awake today. Let's go to Numbers, first of all, chapter 10. Now, one of the things that is said about the Feast of Trumpets in changing this to Pentecost is we say, well, it says at the last trump, it says the trumpet will sound and will be changed. And that trumpets were blown at all the holy days, so therefore, blowing a trumpet on the day of trumpets or blowing a, day, a trumpet on the day of Pentecost does not give us the symbolism needed to understand the meaning of either of those days. Let's see this in Numbers 10. The Eternal spoke to Moses saying, Make you two trumpets, and goes through on how to do it. That isn't our point at the moment. But this was to be done for a very valid reason. Uh, they were to blow the trumpet, let's see, for an assembly, verse 3, they blow but with one trumpet. Then the princes, which are heads of the households of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, verse 5, so it could be for assembly, it could be an alarm. A trumpet makes a very loud noise. And it isn't uh, really good to use a harp to shout a warning or to call an assembly or whatever. You need something that can pierce the airwaves and be heard for a long way away. Remember, the camp probably consisted of three or four million people. Uh, that can cover quite an area. And whether they had relays of trumpets, I don't know, but they had two of them they made for these purposes. Now, perhaps the ranks of the camp were kept pretty close together. Uh, three or four million people can cover an awful lot of area if you put them in houses on streets 
But if you put them in tents right next to each other, then they don't cover quite as much ground. And maybe it could be heard throughout. But various sounds for various purposes. Verse 8, And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. If you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. And indeed, many of the scriptures and prophecy have to do with blowing an alarm. That was quoted this morning. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and tell my people their sins. A warning that if the sins do not cease, we will have difficulties. (coughs) And so on and so forth. And you shall be remembered before the eternal your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. Now, it was a warning. It was a call to an assembly if something important needed to be imparted to the people. Also in verse 10, In the day of your gladness, and in your solemn days, in the beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Eternal, your God. So, there were sacrifices at all the holy days. There were sacrifices at the Sabbaths, new moons, and so on. And they were announced also by trumpet blowing. So, this was something that was done as a general thing on many different occasions within Israel. Okay, Does that establish something for the meaning of Pentecost and trumpets, or is it a general thing? Let's go to Leviticus 23. Now, this is an opening scripture for many sermons about a particular uh, holy day or whatever. But there's something I want to point out here. These are the feasts of the eternal, which you shall proclaim, verse 2. The seventh day is a Sabbath. Then it goes down to Passover and unleavened bread. And notice that it gives quite a little dissertation, quite a little explanation, and all about the different sacrifices and the things that they were to do on, in that period of time. Quite a bit of dialogue there, isn't there? Or monologue. Now, if you go to the day of Pentecost... It talks about, in verse 14, counting to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, during the days of unleavened bread, count seven Sabbaths, even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. So they counted 50 days to Pentecost. And then it talks about, it talks about earlier about the wave sheaf representing Christ. He was the firstborn of many brethren, so the sheaf represents those, represents him plus those that would come along with him, it being a sheaf then, not just one stalk. Then it mentions the two wave loaves that are offered, and it says these are the first fruits, verse 17. We'll get back to that later on. But quite a bit of uh, material here about killing the goats, then the wave offering, the lambs, and so on. Explanation of Pentecost goes on for quite some time. So these first three feasts, we're given a lot of detail, aren't we? Passover, unleavened bread, and Pentecost. Then we come down to Feast of Trumpets, verse 24. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall you have a Sabbath. This is the first day of the seventh month. We are here together on this day. You shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. And no work, and you'll have offerings. That's it. How much explanation is there? How much verbiage does he use to describe the Feast of Trumpets? By comparison to the ones that came before this, almost none. Now, if you read on through, you'll find that on atonement, it mentions quite a bit about atonement. Feast of Tabernacles, it goes on and on there in the last great day, quite a little. 
very little is said about trumpets. Why? I think that what is said is important. It centers around, or has its centerpiece as, the blowing of trumpets. They're all Sabbaths. They're all given uh, offerings and so on. But the only statement made about the Feast of Trumpets is it is a memorial. Something that is done every day so that you might remember something. Or not every day, every day of trumpets, every year. It's a memorial of blowing of trumpets. Now, if you read carefully through this whole chapter, even though Numbers 10 says that you'll blow the trumpets on all holy days, when it gives the specific instruction for each holy day, one mentions the blowing of trumpets. The feast of what? Trumpets. The blowing of trumpets is not mentioned in any of the others at all. Except that, Numbers 10 says they would be blown on all of them. But here you have a day that is memorialized by trumpets. Does that give us any clues? If the Feast of Trumpets was about something else, why isn't something else mentioned? And if Pentecost is about the last trump and the first resurrection, why is not something mentioned about trumpets in the dissertation about Pentecost? I wonder. I think I'm starting to give it away here already. Now, Deuteronomy 16, verse 10, And you shall keep the feasts of the weeks unto the eternal your God. Uh, Is this the verse I wanted? Or 10... No, 1616, I guess, is what I actually wanted. Starts with verse 10, but it it culminates here in verse 16. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the eternal your God in the place which he shall choose. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, and in the Feast of Weeks, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, they shall not appear before the eternal empty. So, we have seven festivals, we have seven holy days... But it says three times you appear before God. Now, why three? Does that mean you don't have to keep atonement and trumpets and and so on? No. It's simply that they're divided. They made three trips a year to Jerusalem. The first time they kept Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. And then it was a 50-day wait until Pentecost. So they went home. They came back for Pentecost... Then there was a long period of time, and they came back for the fall holy days, which the biggest, longest, and greatest, of course, is Feast of Tabernacles. So he's referring here to the seasons, not which days in particular. Three times you come up, but you keep all of it when you come. Just as we have people here today who came before trumpets, and will stay through trumpets, atonement, and the feast, as was done in those days. It was after the harvest, they could come, and they had the time to spend the whole festival time there. Now, let's consider this. And part of the reasoning is that we have Passover, and you have unleavened bread, and then you have seven Sabbaths, and then a liberty proclaimed that the law came on Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came and that represents then the resurrection. Now, is that the case? This author also claims that the 
first resurrection being on Pentecost is the end of everything that represents the church, and that then all the fall holy days, trumpets, atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, last great day, represent the world, the second resurrection. Now, what does God, or how does God, link this together? Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread come, and the Sabbath during Unleavened Bread, you begin a count of 50. Now, you are chained to Passover and Unleavened Bread then, aren't you? As you count. That's a link between Passover and Pentecost. So that 50-day count establishes a link between those. Why? And does that 50 tie in any way to the Jubilee? I've heard people say, well, you got 50 days count to Pentecost and You've got a 50-year cycle with the Jubilee, and therefore, the Jubilee must have something to do with Pentecost. Now, is that the way the Bible links it? Let's look at that for a moment. Leviticus 25. I'll tie this together, hopefully. Leviticus 25 describes and explains the Jubilee. We know that we are to have... Well, let's just read parts of it. Leviticus 25, verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say, that, to, say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the eternal. Six years you shall show your, sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But the seventh is a Sabbath of rest. Then it goes on down to show, verse 8, that you do this seven times, seven times, sabbatical rounds, and then you have a 50th. Seven times seven is 49. The 50th then is the Jubilee. And there you were to proclaim liberty. Verse 9. Then shall you cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound in the tenth day. Well, there's another place they blew the trumpet was in the time of the Jubilee to announce it. When? Blow the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. It goes on to explain about it and how... You didn't really sell land, you just leased it out for so many years. How many were left till the Jubilee? Ten years or twenty or thirty or whatever. But it links the Jubilee, and notice the count is the same. You got 50-day count to Pentecost, and a certain liberty is proclaimed at Pentecost. We'll get to that. Here you have a 50-year count, But it's not linked in Scripture to Pentecost. It's linked to the Day of Atonement. Fifty days and fifty years are a lot different in terms of time and therefore in a larger sense in terms of importance. Just because they are both Seven times seven plus one, days or years, does not necessarily link them together, is the point I want to make here. One is linked to Pentecost in the count of it. One is linked to uh, the Jubilee. This is also tied, let's pick up another thought here to go with this, in Numbers 36. Uh, Let's start here in verse 4. They were to give their inheritances. Verse 3, and let's see. And if if they be married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel. Now, here, here was a problem. People within Israel 
let's say you were given a certain amount of land, your family, and you were in the tribe of, say, Gad, and your daughter married a guy from Asher, and he inherited land, and then you had land. When the Jubilee came, they were supposed to give all the land back to the original family that it had been given to in a particular tribe. But when you married across tribes, this could create a problem. And that's what he's describing here in verse 3. And it is in terms of the inheritance of the land. Now in verse 4, When the jubilee of the children of Israel shall be, then shall their inheritance be put into the inheritance of the tribe whereunto they are received so shall their inheritance be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. He goes on to explain this, that the land always went back to the original. And no matter where you married, within the tribes, that was not your permanent inheritance. You only had it until the Jubilee year, and then it had to go back right where it had come from. Now, we have understood the Day of Atonement to be the time we come at one with Christ. That is a marriage, and it pictures the marriage of Christ, the Lamb, and His Bride. That's the way we have expressed it, and I do believe, see it to be correct. When is a completion? Let's say a young couple meet. Are they married? Let's say they date. Are they married? Let's say they get engaged. Are they married? Let's say they get married. Are they married? They aren't married until that last event, are they? Do we become at one with Christ until we're changed into spirit beings and married? No. Everything before that is preparatory. Everything before that leads up to that event. Things change when you get married, don't they? They're different than they were the day before. Everything's different. Something goes on that did not prior to that time. Let's understand that principle here because there are quite a few analogies we've used in the past to explain the meanings of the holy days and changing the first resurrection to Pentecost will wreck those. We'll get to a little bit of that more here in a moment. Now, what are we going to inherit? Revelation 5.10 will inherit the earth. When is that represented in Scripture? Didn't we just read at the Jubilee? The 50th year is the time of the inheritance being given back to those whose it rightfully is. The earth has been taken away from us. It has been under the auspices and the rule of Satan and his henchmen and human beings. When is Christ coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords, as we heard in the Hallelujah Chorus? After the first resurrection, and then He will marry His bride, and then they will come down to take over and establish a kingdom. So it is in that order. Now, this author states that the law was given on Pentecost, the Mount Sinai, and I think that that is indeed correct. He goes on to say that we then, when Pentecost comes, are changed. Now, is that able to be established in the Bible? He also states that the two loaves there in Leviticus 23 represent us being changed. That leavening at that point represents something good, and we change from unleavened to leavened, and that is the same as being changed from physical to spirit. 
And I'll tell you right off, I don't buy that. Let's, let's not go there. But let's examine the Scriptures themselves and see what they say in context. Because that's the proof. Not somebody else's argument or my logic, theirs or mine. But what does the Scripture say and what does the context of Scripture give us? Let's go for a moment to Acts 2. Let's see if the first resurrection fits what is being stated here for Pentecost. Now, you'll recall that Christ had told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until the Comforter was sent. They were to tarry 50 days, and he would send the Comforter. So, from the Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread, a count of 50 was given, and then he would send a Comforter. All right, with that in mind, let's look at chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And it says it was in the morning, so by fully come, the day actually began at sunset. But it was fully come, the daylight period, when they would have meetings in the morning. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And tongues were given. Uh, They were accused of being drunk. Let's go down and see what Peter said. He says, we're not drunk, it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock. Maybe we should have our services earlier. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Then he's going to show wonders in the heavens above and so on. Now this last part of this was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Was it? You didn't see the heavenly signs and all those things that it describes after that. So that's a yet an occurrence yet to happen. Now, what was the result of this? If you go on down and read it, I won't for sake of time. But there were 3,000 converted on that day. 3,000 baptized. Does that sound like something that depicts the resurrection of the dead and the bride of Christ rising from the earth? 3,000 people baptized. Now, what does baptism represent? If you put the first resurrection here, what does it do to our other beliefs? You were told, had explained to you before you were baptized, the baptism represents a death. You go down into the water, represents a death watery grave. Out of mercy, you're pulled up out of the water so you don't physically die there. But the old man is supposed to stay there. Your old way of thinking, old way of acting, old way of reasoning. The old you was to stay there. You were to come up and have a new type of life. Now, you were at that point let's say, neutral. Your sins had been washed away, but you were still there as a human being. And then what was next? You had the laying on of hands, which pictures the beginning of a new life, a conception, where God puts His Spirit within your mind. And then what? 
Are you changed in the spirit? No. What has, what has been the aftermath? You're still here. You're still human. You still have human nature. You still carnally want to rebel against God. You still have lust, vanity, jealousy, envy, and all those good things. What we had was like a child being conceived. Then there is a period of nine months of growth to maturity. At least a, a mature fetus, whereby then you can be born into the world as a human being. And we have always taught and believed that when that Holy Spirit enters your mind, you then have opportunity to grow so that you can someday be born. You are begotten by the Holy Spirit, then you are born into the kingdom sometime later. At the end of your life, at the resurrection, or if you're alive and remain, you're changed at that time. Don't you have to have a period of growth? What happened here? These men were carnal. Remember the Last Supper? Remember how they were there at the most important evening in history? And they couldn't pray for an hour with Christ. Before that, sitting at the table, they were arguing over who was the greatest. They just didn't get it. And Christ told Peter, did He not? When you are converted, Peter, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter was not converted at that point. They waited. And the Holy Spirit came. And those men were then converted and had the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And their testimony, combined with the Spirit and power of God, combined, caused 3,000 to be baptized that very day. And another 5,000 right after that. And the church grew by leaps and bounds. Were their problems over? Had they achieved total liberty? Were they changed into immortality? No. They suffered. They went through trials, troubles, and tribulations. They suffered martyrdom. They suffered prison. They suffered trials of obedience. The things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. You know what Paul said? Chiefest of sinners and so on and so forth. And they were exhorted over and over again to overcome, to change, to grow, not to be like they were. There was a spiritual process of going from a germination to ready to be born into the kingdom of God. And this has to occur over a period of time. When you were converted, did you instantly become perfect? Now, the first resurrection, remember, you're not going to be human anymore. You'll be changed into spirit into perfection, just like that. That doesn't happen at baptism and the laying on of hands. It is a process that begins there. So, Pentecost did not represent a completion, a resurrection. It represented a beginning. A beginning of a big calling of people. A beginning of a growth period for people. The first resurrection represents a completion. A finished product ready to be changed. There is a vast difference there between that beginning and that completion. See, that began a series of events with the beginning of the New Testament church that has continued century after century until today when another big calling has occurred.
There was a big calling at the beginning of the New Testament church and a big calling here at the end. It is barely traceable through the Middle Ages. Barely traceable. If traceable. Now, what about those two wave loaves? I do believe they represent the first fruits. Who are the first fruits? Revelation 14 and verse 4. He's speaking of 144,000. Verse 4, These are they which were not defiled with women, false churches, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes, His bride. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. In their mouth was found no guile. They are without fault before the throne of God. So when the first fruits, the 144,000, are gathered, it says they will be without fault. Perfection will have been achieved. You did not see perfection achieved at Pentecost in Acts 2 at all, did you? It was the beginning of a growth period. The 144,000 will be complete by the time Christ returns to collect his bride and take her up for the wedding. So, Pentecost represents a beginning. Now, let's go for a moment to John 16. Because here, Christ describes the time when he leaves, or when he left, and he said, I will send a comforter. And let's see what that comforter is to do. And it came on Pentecost, no doubt. Fifty days later, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. Verse, chapter 16 of John. These things have I spoken to you, that you should not be offended. They'll put you out of the synagogues. The time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God service. These things will they do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you, remember, you may remember that I told you of them. And it was going to come in the next few years to them. Now we know in Matthew 24, he's referring to the end time and says they're going to come to the church again. So it's a prophecy that was fulfilled and is fulfilled again in the end time. He says, I was with you, but now I go my way to him that sent me, verse 5, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I'm leaving, so that made them feel bad. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Now, up to that point, he had been with them, had he not? Had that created conversion in them? Had it created conversion in anybody? His entire ministry did not produce one convert. And that was Christ Himself. So He said, it's better that I go away because me just being with you here as I am is not doing you a whole lot of good. Okay? You are lacking something that you need. So it's expedient that I leave and send something for you. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. So he said, it won't be sent unless I go. So it's better for you that I go. Now that sounds strange to our ear. How could it be better that Christ leave than that He stay? Because we were missing something that we needed in order to become what God wants us to be. If I depart, I will send it to you. And when it is come, I think this is important now to consider, and I've never looked at it in this context before. When it is come, it will reprove the world of sin. Now think about Acts 2. 
When that spirit came, and those men began to speak in other languages, and people heard in their own language, it startled them. It awakened them. And what did it do? It reproved them of sin. What did Peter say in Acts 2.38? Repent and be baptized. So, repent of what? Sin. So, the Holy Spirit, just as soon as it got here, began to reprove the world of sin. He said that's what he said it would do. And of righteousness. They accused them of being drunks. No, the Holy Spirit was imparting an ability and a gift that they had not had before that they could use to communicate to all these people who spoke different languages. And of judgment. Of sin, because they, the world, believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world, Satan, is now open to judgment. I have set many things, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when it, the Spirit of truth, is come, it will guide you into all truth, for it shall not speak of itself, but whatsoever it shall hear, that shall it speak, and it will show you things to come. Does that sound like the first resurrection and being a part of the kingdom of God? No, not at all. The, the reason for the Holy Spirit to come is defined for us here. Various reasons for needing it are given. If you're going to be resurrected and become a first fruit on Pentecost, why do you need prophecy? It's a done deal. Why do you need reproof against sin? You're in the resurrection. Your judgment is complete. It isn't needed at that point. To reprove the world of sin? That's what the Holy Spirit is for. So what that represented was Christ going to the Father and them sending the Holy Spirit so that minds might be opened, that understanding might come, and people might begin to work toward righteousness. Not be resurrected into perfection. It was a beginning, not an ending. I never tied that together before until I started studying this subject. What did it do? What did Christ say it would do? And then, literally, Acts 2, what did it do? It did the things He said it would do. It began a process of salvation for a New Testament church. Prepare them as what? First fruits. So, the, so what Pentecost then has to represent is that Christ died at Passover, we began to put sin out of our lives, and we failed miserably at it, as did the apostles, and they were unconverted until Pentecost came. Then the Holy Spirit came and opened their mind to true understanding, and through their preaching on that very day, 3,000 began to be reproved of sin and repent and be baptized so that someday they might qualify for the resurrection. Now, does that make sense or what? It was a beginning, not an ending. Now, the church has... Let's, let's go back for a moment to Leviticus 23. Let's address these two loaves a little bit. It does say that once you count 50, uh, verse 17, you offer these two wave loaves 
and they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the eternal. So here at Pentecost, indeed it does equate to or refer to the first fruits. Now, who are the first fruits? They are defined, as we saw in Revelation 14, 4, as the 144,000. Who are the 144,000? Go to Revelation 19 to 21. It's speaking of the bride, the 144,000 first fruits who rise to meet Christ in the air. That's who the 144,000 are. So, when it says these are the first fruits, it represents who? The 144,000. The first resurrection. Now, this author tries to say that these are baked with leaven, and they were. You see, during Passover, leavening represents sin. It represents something that is ego and pride and puffs us up to think we're more important than we are. And that has to be deflated. That has to go away. But that's the only time that leaven represents sin. Notice uh, Matthew 13, 30, keep your finger here, Matthew 13, verse 33. Another parable spoke he to them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. So leavening represents righteousness here. It represents the kingdom of God, not sin. It represents sin for only seven days. Here it represents what? A process. When you make bread, you roll out the dough, you put your yeast in, and then what do you do? You wait, don't you? It has to rise. Rise, rising, or the rising of bread dough takes a period of time until it's ready to be put in the oven. Once it's put in the oven, it is being cooked and it continues to rise, doesn't it? So it's a period of time that occurs. Now that equates to what we just examined in John 16 and Acts 2. That they began a process that had to continue over a period of time until the bread was ready. Until it had been thoroughly leavened. That's the way it's put there in Matthew 13, is that the woman puts the leavening in and then she waits until it goes through the whole loaf. So the kingdom of God will not be established until the righteousness of God imparted by and the conversion of through the Holy Spirit is complete. Until not ten or two thousand but 144,000 have had that leavening of righteousness go through them until that process is complete for all of them. Then and only then can the resurrection occur. So the kingdom of heaven is like that. Now, it is posed that since leavening represents the kingdom of God, that these two wave loaves represent the resurrection. I don't think so. Because that takes a period of time. You were not ready at baptism to be part of the kingdom of God. I dare say most of us are still not ready. It takes time for the kingdom of God to go through us, completely, and righteousness to occur, doesn't it? Quite a period of time. So these loaves represent the first fruits that are infused with leavening, which then causes righteousness to begin to flow through us until the job is complete. Then we can be changed. So that fits the growth process that is required for a Christian. 
or the conception, growth of fetus, born. It doesn't do violence to any of the things we believed in the past. But if you believe the first resurrection came on Pentecost, it does do violence to all of those analogies that include a growth period. Because there is no such thing. <coughs> and look at the disciples themselves. If, from the time Christ departed, Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, He went to be accepted of the Father at the day of the wave sheet. Was there a period of growth in those disciples? Either the twelve or the hundred and twenty people? No. They just sat and waited. Nothing happened. They didn't grow. They didn't have greater understanding. They didn't do a work. They didn't prepare for the kingdom of God so they could be resurrected symbolically at Pentecost. Not at all. They stood there dumb as a rock. As unconverted as a rock. All that time. And nothing happened until Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came to reprove the world of sin and to start bringing in righteousness. Well, did Peter, James, John, all those guys become righteous that day? No, they did not. It began to grow with them from that time. And it's still growing through you and me until we all come to a time of readiness. Be we either dead or still alive, and 144,000, an exact number, has had the kingdom of God spread through them. Are all those things that pertain to the kingdom of God. So they are then ready to help establish the kingdom of God. Now it has been said, and the church believed for years, and I think that it is true, and so did this author, that perhaps the two wave blows represent, why is it two? Perhaps those who qualified before Christ came, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, David. And then the second loaf represents those from the time he was here. That may indeed be the case. Although, I wonder now if it might be a little different than that. And this is only speculation. I don't know that I can prove this one way or the other. Any more than we can prove that one loaf represents before Christ and one loaf represents after. But Pentecost represents a calling, doesn't it? That's what happened in Acts 2. It began a calling. So there was a great calling then, and then it died out by 100 A.D. primarily, about 70 years, more or less, and it was gone, except for just small remnants. And those small remnants remained until what? Another great calling here at the end under Herbert Armstrong. Many were called. Now few are being chosen. So, here's a possibility or a speculative thing that I cannot prove because the Bible simply doesn't seem to explain it much. But is it possible that the first loaf represented that first great calling on the day of Pentecost in Acts and the second loaf represents the last big calling here at the end? I think that that is a possibility. Those few who were called prior to Christ's coming, and there are most of them named in Hebrews 11, plus some, but there were not very many. So do they represent a loaf, or are they just something, or they are simply people whom God is including because He had worked with them and they've qualified for the kingdom of God? They've already gone through their growth period and their obedience time with God, and David did say that he didn't want God to take his Holy Spirit from him. Now, was it with him or was it in him? The Scripture is not clear on that, but it just could be that God made a few exceptions and allowed that spirit of begettle in the minds of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Enoch, Elijah, and, you know, just to name a few of them. I don't know that. That's a speculative issue. 
In any case, Hebrews 11 says they will be in the kingdom of God, so it doesn't really matter. But if those two loaves represent the beginning church and the end time church, there's two great bodies of people who will comprise the vast majority of the 144,000. Of the thousands called in the first century and the thousands called in the 20th century. And perhaps the calling was even greater in the 20th than in the first in terms of numbers. I don't know that for sure, but it's a very likely possibility. But whether it's the Old Testament and the New Testament, or it's the two callings in the New Testament, still it is only a calling, a beginning, and a period of development and growth until ready to be resurrected. We see the difference there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I can wrap this up in time. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, let's go down. Verse 22. For as in, Adam, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after they... Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. Another place says that He is the first of the first fruits. And Revelation 14.4 says the 144,000 are the totality of the first fruits. These are the first fruits. No equivocation, no stuttering. That's all there are. He the first and 144,000 to follow. So, when he talks about the resurrection a little later in this chapter, he has to be talking about the first fruits. That's Paul's subject here. Now, he talks about various glories, the various uh, forms down here in verse 38. But God gives it a body as it pleased him, to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. You've got flesh of men, flesh of beasts, flesh of fishes, birds. Celestial and terrestrial, that which is in the heavens and that which is here on the earth. So he shows there are different types. And even the sun and moon and the stars have different glories, verse 41. So also, verse 42, is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. When we die, we rot. When we're raised, we are made incorruptible. We'll never die or rot again. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown a natural human body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, when does this occur? He goes on down and says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised up incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So the first resurrection occurs at the last trump. Which feast of all of them, and Leviticus 23 mentions a trumpet. Only one. And it doesn't talk about anything else but a trumpet. This is an important event. Pentecost, we have seen, is a beginning. This is a finishing thing that's being described here. It's a culmination. It's a completion. It's a total change from flesh to spirit, from dead to alive at the last trump. Trumpets were not employed in Acts 2. 
cloven tongues of fire, a great sound, no trumpets. Why? If that represented the resurrection, why not have a little bit of trumpet music? This shows the resurrection at the last trump. Uh, go to Matthew 24. And here I want about, oh, verse 31. Matthew 24. Well, it's talking about Christ returning immediately after the tribulation in verse 29. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So you're going to have the great sound of a trumpet and all the people gathered up. First, Thess- First Thessalonians. Chapter 4. We're familiar with this one as well. Verse 16. For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God... And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air and will always be with him from then on, it says. So comfort each other with these words. With the trump of God. Now, which holy day would that keep referring to? I would think that it would be the one that was mentioned that a trumpet would be blown. A memorial. It's a memorial for the first fruits to be changed into immortality at the last trump. There were other meanings for Pentecost as we've already examined. Let's go to Revelation 10. Verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished. Now, these are the seven trumpets. They started back here. Seventh seal was opened in chapter 8. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So each one blew. And at the time that the seventh sounded or blew the trumpet... The mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants the prophets. So at the time of the seventh trump, the mystery of God begins to clear up. People rise off the ground, they are changed into spirit. Now the mystery isn't complete yet until the day of atonement, when Christ marries the bride on the sea of glass with the Father doing the service. Then it is nearing completion. Then we come back down after a one-year honeymoon, and the world sees the mystery completely cleared up. New heavens and the new earth come, the bride, the 144,000, the new Jerusalem, and the Father and the Son with it to set up their rule. Now the mystery is completely resolved. But it's the beginning of the explanation of the mystery when the 144,000 first fruits rise off the earth at the last trump. We will have grown and been prepared by the Holy Spirit, by Christ Himself, so that we're ready to be resurrected at that time. If you do it at Pentecost, there's no room to grow. No time for the Holy Spirit to react and interact with us. Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever.
So it's at the sound. I, did I miss that? Oh, Matthew twenty four thirty one. They says they gather at the sound of the great trumpet. I knew I was missing something there. I won't go back, but you see, you had all these trumpets. Remember how we started out there, Numbers ten. You had all these trumpets for all these different things. Assembly, war, alarm, holy days, new moon, you name it. They blew the trumpet. But this is the great trumpet. Now, I would equate that to that feast mentioned in Leviticus 23, which talks about nothing but a trumpet memorial. And a trumpet is not mentioned with any of the other feasts. But other explanation is. I believe that we have been correct in the church all along. Pentecost represents the coming of the Holy Spirit to give us comfort, to give us help, to give us the capacity to be converted to God's way of thinking and to grow and overcome so that we might be ready by the time of the last trump at the, represented by the Feast of Trumpets. The long, hot summer between Pentecost and Feast of Trumpets represents the growth period, the dog days of summer, boot camp, overcoming, growing, trials, troubles, tribulation. Remember even in the Jews' analogy that we went through of the marriage, the husband sent a gift to the bride, and then he was away preparing an abode, a house for her, even as Christ said, I will go and prepare a place for you. And then he comes to claim his bride once the house is ready, once the bride is prepared. He comes and takes her and then marries her. That's the Jewish tradition. It fits what we have believed in the past, even though we did not have that analogy to go with it. We're here today in memoriam of the blowing of the great trumpet. When in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, those who have been prepared from Pentecost through the growth period are ready to rise and meet Christ in the air. If anybody can show me anything different than that, I'd like to see it. <laughs>